Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hi, Ned. How are you? I'm doing okay, Fernita. How are you? Well, hanging in there. You know, we've had um, some some pretty sad news recently with the death of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and just, you know, trying to adjust to a new reality. She was kind of a, uh, a huge figure on the court um, and in popular culture. And so... It's, it was a bit of a shocker, um, but, you know, she, she did leave a legacy of jurisprudence. Yeah, she sure did, and there's obviously been, you know, so much appropriate uh, tributes to her and uh, uh, honoring her legacy, a lot of moving commentary from uh, many of her law clerks and, and others. Uh, I think what maybe our role could be is to talk a little bit about her legacy specifically in the context of voting rights. Uh, I mean, she obviously uh, transcends so many areas and and she'll always be known for gender equality, both before she got on the court and then as a justice. But she was a distinctive voice in our field. And I think that's worth noting. I think that she had earned her title as the kind of head of the liberal block of the court, right? She wrote um, some some pretty famous dissents, including uh, the Shelby County decision, which um, she wrote a dissent in that case. And I have a, a, a somewhat funny story. Uh, now it's kind of like, oh, you know, sad. But uh, I had to laugh at myself about this story because it's the one time I actually uh, met uh, Justice Ginsburg. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, I was I was so nervous when I met her. Um, so uh, before I launch into the story, just to sort of put everything in perspective for our listeners, uh, as most of our listeners probably know, Shelby County is a decision in which the court invalidated um, Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act, which determined those jurisdictions who had to pre-clear any changes to their laws with the federal government. In a very powerful dissent, you know, Justice Ginsburg makes the argument that um, the preclearance regime continued to be needed. And she points to the incidence of Section 2 litigation in the South. She points to um, the legislative record, which showed both um, actions taken with intentional discrimination and actions that had a discriminatory effect in order to show that it was it continued to be needed. Um, and that, you know, Congress had actually done its due diligence in reauthorizing this provision. And so I had always been really struck by the dissent, you know, just, you know, in feeling like the majority never really responded to the points that she raised and that it just made me feel like they were determined and set on striking it down. Um, And so fast forward a few years, I get an opportunity to meet the justice and, you know, I'm very nervous and I go up to her and I introduce myself and Ned, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just going to say something brilliant and, and just thought provoking. I said, thank you so much for your dissent in Shelby County. That's the only thing I said. I was, you know, after the fact, I was like, I sound like an idiot, you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was from the heart. It was what, you know, it was what you wanted to say. It was right. me. And, and it was so funny, though, because her response, of course, she, you know, was g- super gracious. And she, she just said, you know, I, I just regret that I ever had to write it, um, which was, I mean, really the point. Right. Um but I'm just glad I got an opportunity to, to meet her before she passed because she was such a giant to me and, and made a difference. And, it, you know, and even though she was in dissent quite a bit on the issues that I cared about, 
I felt like her voice was really, really important. Right. Well, she she wrote some very powerful and important dissents, some very important majority opinions in our area as well. I think um, I had heard the story not from her, but just I think it's been publicly reported that her response to Bush versus Gore was that she felt that um, the four dissenting justices in that case fractured their voice um, by writing four separate dissents. And that when she became the senior member of the liberal wing of the court, uh, she persuaded the other colleagues that were the liberals that they shouldn't do that and that they should be more unified. And I think Shelby County is a legacy of of that. In other words, the the dissent spoke with one voice, uh, yes. and it was a powerful voice. And it, um, I think, it does leave a different impression than uh, the more chaotic uh, dissenting fragmentation in Bush versus Gore. So um, yeah, and I think it, it's an important legacy, particularly as we enter into. And I hate to put it this way now, but I can't think of any other way to to frame it. I think that it is important because my sense is that we're entering into a period of the court where there will be firm blocks. I mean, you know, if Judge Barrett is seated, then you will have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. And um, I do think you will have more decisions where you have majority and the dissenters speaking in a very unified voice. Like this just, just by virtue of the numbers. Um, I wonder if the fact that the conservative majority is will be, I mean, 5-4 is one thing, right? You you sort of wonder about the legitimacy of the court. Um, there's some concern that having a bunch of 5-4 decisions could be uh, bad for the court. Uh, but 6-3 is different, right? 6-3 to me says something very different. And I do think that the, the three remaining liberal justices will probably be more unified um, and more strategic about their differences of opinion with their colleagues. And in some ways that is uh, Justice Ginsburg's legacy, right? I think she taught them that. I think that there's value in that as we talk about the justices and their legacies and where they stand and what they think, right? Um, There are far too many decisions where sometimes you're not clear where the court lands because you have so many different opinions and you have to piece it together. Um, that was, uh, in fact, a lot of the cases in election law cases in the 1990s, where sometimes you had Justice O'Connor writing for a plurality of the court and then writing for herself. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, so I do think there's something nice about that, just in terms of crystallizing the positions of the, dis- the different contingents on the court. And, um, and I, I think there's value in that. That's in- interesting. Because um, I, I was thinking about two of, the, two of the opinions from Justice Ginsburg in our election law area that come to mind. Uh, both seem potentially vulnerable to overruling, partly because the court is moving in the 6-3 direction that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. One is the Arizona redistricting case, uh, which was 5-4, where she wrote for the majority and got uh, Justice Kennedy to join her. This was to uphold uh, independent redistricting commissions. Uh, it's, It's a technical issue of interpretation, actually kind of an important one maybe for what might go on this year, but but the, I think the important thing to note at first is that Chief Justice Roberts wrote a very um, impassionate dissent. He felt very strongly about his op- opinion that uh, the majority was just incorrect as a matter of textual interpretation, regardless of policy. And now, and regardless of context, too, Ned. 
<laughs> yes, you're right, right, right. Um, but just counting numbers, you know, uh, Justice Kennedy's not on the court anymore, and uh, and now Justice Ginsburg is not. And and I would think, and star decisis may not mean as much given a, a textualist theory of jurisprudence that says you overrule anything that you think is inconsistent with the text. So... I think the court could come out the other way on that issue or related issues. I mean, they could. Would... They could. Um, I do. It's, it's, to me, a little bit more complicated than that, right? So the issue in the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case is whether or not legislature means legislature, right, in the context of the elections clause. Can a state delegate to an independent commission the authority to draw congressional districts, or is that power reserved to the legislature? Um, I think you're right that it's a uh, it's a textual issue, and the the chief justice felt very strong about it. There's also a question of whether or not stare decisis is as strong as it would ordinarily operate. The problem is that they would have to overrule a few cases, <laughs> right? There were a few cases where the court interpreted legislature to mean more than just the you know elected body that exercises exercises lawmaking authority, um, and so um, my hope. And, and, and maybe this doesn't matter anymore, and I'll explain why. My hope is that the, the chief justice continues to have his concerns about the legitimacy of the court such that it will stay the court's hand. But maybe that doesn't matter as much now that you'll have a Judge Barrett on the court who will, you know, give them cushion to where he, I, I mean, he may end up in dissent sometimes with the dissenting justices, which will be strange, right, uh, mm-hmm. with the uh, the liberal block, um, just on legitimacy concerns, uh, but you still have a five four decision. So I mean, I don't I don't know. He might as well vote with the, the majority if he if he believes that. And if you read the dissent in that case, he honestly believes that legislature means legislature. So can I ask you a question about the six three point that you that you made and, and uh relate a, a something of a story of my own. Um you know my, I was fortunate enough to um be a law clerk at the time that the U.S. Supreme Court decided one of these um, one-person, one-vote cases, and it involved uh, New York City government. Uh, and as anybody who's been to New York City knows, New York City is made up of five boroughs. There's Manhattan and Brooklyn and the Bronx and Queens and Staten Island. And uh, the claim in the case was that defending New York City, New York City being a big Population-wise, just a big city, larger than many uh, states in the country, just in terms of population, they wanted to claim the right to have city government, a city legislature that had two chambers, like kind of like Congress, and uh, they would have an upper chamber and a lower chamber. The lower chamber would be based on one person, one vote, equal population, um, but the upper chamber was going to basically give, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but the essence of the point was that each borough of New York City was going to have equal voting rights, regardless of population, kind of like the U.S. Senate has equal voting rights for each state, regardless of population. And Staten Island's view was, hey, we need this to protect ourselves, because it used to be that New York City was a separate, five, the boroughs didn't come together as a consolidated city until, you know, like 1900 or so. Um, and just like the states of the United States came together to form a more perfect union, but they wanted to keep their status as states with 
you know, from, uh, I guess, Rhode Island getting one vote and Virginia getting one vote, Staten Island was going to get one vote, even though it had tiny population relative to Manhattan or Brooklyn. So Staten Island was Wyoming. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And what interested me, so so to try to make this short, or short is uh, they were they said, look, we've got a really good argument for what we're doing that's consistent with the philosophy of the federal constitution as the Congress is. And the Supreme Court, this is 1989, nine zip rejected that claim and said the Reynolds versus Sims doctrine of one person, one vote that comes from the 1960s Warren Court is just the prevailing philosophy of how we do redistricting. And you're no exception, New York City. You may think you're the Big Apple or whatever, but you got to play by the same rules that you do. And Staten Island doesn't get it's to think of itself as Wyoming. Um, New York City can't structure itself in this kind of federalism sort of way. Uh, at the time, you know, at the time, I, I was struck by just how striking that unanimity was because you had so-called originalist conservatives on the court at the time. Justice Scalia was a member of the court. Justice Rehnquist is a member of the court. It could have been possible for the conservative justices to, whether to distinguish the old precedent of Reynolds versus Sims in the Warren Court or try to attack it, because I think an honest account of an originalist theory you would say Reynolds versus Sims is not originalist. It's it's a pro-democracy small d decision. It gives people equal voting rights, but it's hard to square, at least in my judgment, with with an original intent theory. And the dissenters back then said so. So if Scalia and Rehnquist wanted to be really aggressive with their conservative jurisprudence, they could have planted a flag and said, well, we'll allow this no more. Not a peep, not a single word, not anything. And the reason why I mentioned this now is it feels to me like the balance of power has really shifted in the way that you were talking about in terms of 6-3 and that the ideological climate is such that um, uh, that that if the court today had gotten the Staten Island claim right now they would see it as an invitation to rethink everything Uh, and my sense of that is, is that there was this case out of Texas a few years ago that Justice Ginsburg got to write the majority of opinion, um, which wasn't quite this big rethink yet. But what happened there is you now had the conservatives like Justice Thomas and Justice Alito starting to plant the fat flag in their dissenting opinion, saying, We're, we want to rethink this jurisprudence. And, that, and those dissents there struck me as so different than the total silence in 1989. And that just shows me that this moment that we're in is a different moment. In term, We've had changes in the composition of the court. We've had shifts and transformations. Um, but I don't think we've had anything quite like uh, what we're going to um, see right now because of what you say. It's not anymore like on the tipping point 5-4. It's like 6-3 solidity. And so my question to you, after all of that long-windedness on my part, is do you think the conservatives, with a purely textualist approach, would be so bold as to really take Reynolds versus Sims and the whole one-person-one doctrine of the 1960s and the Warren Court head-on and say, you know, that was a wrong turn. The court never should have gone down that path in the first place. 
I don't think it's that bold, actually. Um, and <laughs> and I know I'm, I'm probably in the minority with that, but uh, I don't think about the course jurisprudence in silos. You know, I, I look at it as um, every... So in election law, we study various aspects of doctrine, right? We study redistricting, we study the right to vote, we study campaign finance. And I think if you look across doctrines, you see that the conservative justices have really laid a foundation to do a lot of the things that we're scared that they'll ultimately do, even though they've been doing it. Um, and so I think your example of what happened in New York in 1989 is a good one um, because it's entirely possible that part of that narrative is that Justice Scalia and Justice Rehnquist, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time, was just they were just being patient. Right. Like, <laughs> I do think that there is um, there's a lesson there that the, the people who are, you know, more progressive, more liberal tend to overlook. Um, a, a, a good comparator would be the 2009 decision in Northwest Austin. Right. Um, Justice Thomas was on, you know, he was on a rampage. He's like, what are we doing? Right. Um, but the chief justice was being patient and he, and his time came four years later and he was able to address some of the concerns that he had about possibly being too bold. Right. He's like, I gave Congress a chance to fix the Voting Rights Act. They didn't do it. Um, so I think a lot of this is just about being patient and, and chipping away at doctrines. Um, and in the context of one person, one vote, the court has done that, right? There was a case called Jefferson versus Tenet, Tenet versus Jefferson County out of West Virginia. I don't know if you remember that case, Ned. It was from a few years ago. Um, but Justice Scalia wrote for the we majority. We should probably remind uh, our, listen, our listeners probably aren't right. quite as up to speed on that particular <laughs> case as maybe you yeah. and so I Justice Scalia wrote for the majority there, and he basically said that um, states can deviate from one person, one vote in the context of congressional districts um, for, um, you know, various legislative policies, right? If they want to keep political subdivisions to, together and so on. Now, the, the, the rule prior to that is that the court allowed some deviations for state legislative districts, right? And part of the argument was that there's so many of them and they have to take so many different considerations, um, uh, have to be baked into the cake and drawn the lines. Uh, but for congressional districts, the rule had been for a long time, absolute population equality. Um, and so tenant is important because it allows uh, states to deviate with respect to congressional districts, which means one person, one vote is not really that much of a constraint anymore. It's just that the state now has to have a reason to deviate. Right. Um, and so in that framework, in that context, um, how vulnerable is one person, one vote? And ultimately, does it matter? <laughs> I guess is my question. Um, it seems like we had already been backing away from um, strict enforcement of the rule. And plus with computer software, states can gerrymander and do everything they want while purporting to adhere to one person, one vote. So I don't, I just don't know how robust the rule is anymore. Um, whereas the, the Evanwell decision was really interesting and really alarming because it sort of presented a new um, attack on political equality, right? This idea that, you know, when states... Now, this is just a... Sorry, to, this just, again, for our listeners, this is the case from, what, 2016 out of Texas that I mentioned that Justice Alito and Thomas were dissenting in when Justice Ginsburg wrote the majority. Right, right. Right. Yeah. right. States have to be uh, apportioned based on... That districts have to be drawn based on legal voters instead of total population. Right. And so, I, you know, we we're now entering an era where states are trying to be more creative in how they disenfranchise. And it's hard to think about the implications for of sort of that and the one person, one vote rule, particularly when we're li already living in a framework in which the rule is only a weak constraint. So, 
let's say the court comes in and says boldly, you say, right? <laughs> the court comes in and says no more one person, one vote. Um, I would respond that I don't know if that really matters other than the fact that it matters rhetorically, right? We like to think one person, one vote does sound nice, right? We like to think about things in terms of equal political equality, right? Rhetorically, it sounds good. It says something about who we are. But the reality is that because states can deviate and have been able to deviate for a number of years now, I'm not sure how robust the one person, one vote doctrine has been anyway. Right. And to your point about the clarity of 6-3, I hadn't anticipated that we might take the conversation this direction, but I want to ask um, whether or not you think long run it would be better for voting rights and democracy to have that clarity because it would force textual constitutional amendments like the, the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment or Rick Hassan who proposes a new voting rights amendment. Um, with, with, as we've talked about, I'm working on this book or uh, on the progressive era and what, what strikes me about the difference between the progressive era and the pro-democracy changes that it made uh, compared to the civil rights era is the progressive era, they were all uh, through the vehicle of a constitutional amendment or legislation. They weren't judicial interpretation. So they kind of had more staying power because the 19th Amendment is right there in the Constitution or the or the, the 17th Amendment that had direct election of U.S. senators. Get, it's a, you know, added to the Constitution. Now, there were problems with the progressive era. As we talked about, it wasn't progressive on the issue of race. Um, so it was deeply flawed. But the good things that it did were not by judicial transformation. It, it was by uh, constitutional amendment. That's the challenge, though, Ned. Like, let me just sort of weigh in right here, because I do think that's a challenge, right? Like, we've talked about how the era was flawed because of the um, the fact that they didn't focus on race. But the only reason they were really able to accomplish what they did was because they ignored it. And to me, that is a a huge distinction when you try to draw parallels between what they were able to accomplish and what we need now, right? Can we accomplish anything on the the front of sort of democracy and progressive voting rights and elections by ignoring race? And and I understand that's a big question. And honestly, people, um, there's scholarship out there suggesting that we do need to take a more universalist approach to voting, right? That... Um, the coalition that resulted in the Voting Rights Act and um, sort of the Warren Court era's um, very progressive stance on race is no more, right? And so perhaps we are in an era in which we need to sort of have to be universalist and, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, But I wonder if that's possible, right? Because we are also living in a moment where race is very salient, right? People are in the streets marching um, on racial issues, Um, And, you know, in some ways, a universalist approach ignores the uh, how race has fractured. The the reason that the coalition of the 1960s is fractured in part because we're still struggling with and it didn't completely resolve our issues around race. It seems odd to me to say that the solution to that is to ignore race. But I don't know what the answer is. (laughs) No, no, no. I think that's a really important point. If you don't mind, at least I want to deflect it for today because it's kind of too big for me to 
wrap, but because I want to ask a procedural question instead of the really more important substantive question that you're asking, and that is whatever we think on the substance of the reform we need, like you said, you know, we, we need reform for democracy now. Yes. But if we could just bracket what the content of that is momentarily and say, how do we get there procedurally? Um, tell me if there's a third route. You know, route number one is through judicial decree, which is the Warren Court methodology, because you're it's counter-majoritarianism. You're not going to get this through the political process because the political process is broken. So you've got to rely on the courts to... to it, it's it's an irony, but you need the most undemocratic branch of government to actually jumpstart democracy, right? That's John Hart Ely and his theory. Um, well, that's not happening anymore. I, I think that you know, I think we that's not the governing philosophy, and it won't be after. It is for the legal academy. People lo- still love Ely, still push it, still you know. Well, and- true. <laughs> and I, but 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 that's. But I wonder I don't if we're think, talking to ourselves, though. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think, and and there's nothing wrong with trying to build intellectual coherence. But I think if we're honest to again our audience, right? I think the philosophy that you, that presumably Justice Barrett will bring to the court, joining Justice Gorsuch, joining Justice Thomas, the the textualist Ely was, uh, he his whole point was that. There's some. There's a transcendent idea of democracy that's larger than the text, right? Uh, and the the justices on the court don't, are, don't believe in anything transcendent as a matter of their judicial role. They just want to do the text. So I think if if that's the prevailing philosophy, you're you're not going to get any advancement of a transcendent idea of, of democracy. And you again may get rollback if the, if the notion is the only judicial thing to do is just enforce the text, even which if is nonsense. Is- you know, I just will say there's, you can't just, <laughs> there's no such thing as just enforcing a text, right? Like I, you know, the balls and strikes thing. I mean, come on. <laughs> All right. But it, I, right, fair enough. But I just want to, but if that, if that route is now unavailable, right. We like it or not. And if the constitutional amendment route is unavailable for whatever reason, because we can't seem to get a constitutional amendments, you know, what other route is there? I mean, are we just stuck with a fundamentally undemocratic constitution that is capable of, incapable of, of change? I, I find that hard to believe as a political science matter. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what our, our only resort is, right? Like, one of the things I argue in my book that I'm working on is that we can actually do a lot with the constitutional text that we just don't do. Right. Um, I, you, you know, I've always said on, on, on our show, the, the courts will not save us. Right. And, and I think that's hard for a lot of uh, progressives like myself to accept. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, elections matter and that, you know, Congress can do a lot. Uh, Congress has done a lot in terms of uh, influencing the scope and shape of our elections that we just simply do not do anymore because we believe that the courts are the body who is charged with this. One thing about, I guess, in my view, a silver lining of everything that is happening, you know, sort of a uh, 6-3 conservative majority on the court um, that's hostile to voting rights for the foreseeable future is that we turn to state uh, legislatures, we we turn to uh, to Congress, we turn to the other other entities that actually have power in this space, um, entities that until recently had been uh, pretty overlooked. 
Um, and so I don't think I don't you know, I guess maybe I'm just an optimist and I don't despair. I wouldn't you know, normally you're the optimist on this show, the show. I'm not normally the optimist, but I do think that there are things that can be done. Right. This is why, uh, you know, a lot of the work you do in the space is so important, because one of the things you do is you remind us of controversies of the past, um, how they were addressed, how we can learn from them. Um, I'm really looking forward to this book on the progressive era for that reason. Like, how can we learn from them? How, to what extent is this a blueprint? Even if, you know, there were clear flaws, there are still things that we can take from that era and trying to move uh, forward on um, these issues that we all care about. And so I'm not despairing at all. Right. I just think that um, if we're honest with ourselves, the court has been uh, to the right since the 90s. Right. Like this isn't this isn't new. Um, yes, it's, it's frustrating for me. Um, I'm a little disheartened by it, but it's also not that far from how the reality has been on these issues. Anytime the court rules in favor of um, expansive access to the ballot is always a pleasant surprise. Um, it will continue to be a pleasant surprise in the future. Right. You know, uh, I know people like to say we have lost the courts. Uh, that was a long time ago. They've, they've actually been lost for most of my adult life. <laughs> um, so but it's an opportunity and we, we need to take advantage of this opportunity. If you are one who cares about access and people voting and disenfranchisement, there are other bodies that have power in this space. We need to stop ignoring them. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I think uh, Congress, a new Congress may be very generative of new voting rights uh, in the future. And, and as you say, states may have that that power, too. I'd like to quibble one point with language, and then I, I want, I'm looking at the clock. I want to bring up two more practical uh, present moment issues. This is a great you know, general jurisprudence um, mm -hmm. uh, conversation, but there are two developments I just want us to, to talk about. But one little language quibble, um, and I heard somebody else say it, and it struck me then, too. I, I want to say, for my speaking just solely for myself, I want to say that the that the justices in this potentially new six-member majority who are committed to textualism, I do not want to describe their view as hostile to voting rights. And the reason why I say that is if, if, if you have a jurisprudential commitment to textualism, whether we might agree with that jurisprudence or not, um, it is at least a coherent and it could be sincere position to say, um, I'm not personally hostile to voting rights. I feel my job is to enforce the Constitution. And I wish the Constitution protected more voting rights. If it had a, an amendment that did, I would enforce that. But I've got to enforce the Const Constitution as written. And again, the simplest example is we were talking about Wyoming and California having equal rights in the U.S. Senate. Uh, regardless of population. I mean, I think that is the, we've talked about this on the show, I think that is you know, one of the most undemocratic, small d, undemocratic features of the U.S. Con Constitution. It's just not fair, in my estimation, that Wyoming and, and California have this. We're all U.S. citizens. We all should have equal voting rights, at least for the presidential election. And our Constitution is blatantly undemocratic and, and a denial of equal voting rights. But I think the textual um, clarity of that provision of the Constitution is so strong, it would be judicially inappropriate for a court to attempt to say, I'm going to strike down the fact that the, you know, the, the Senate is structured the way it is. And I think if a justice did that, 
they wouldn't be personally hostile to voting rights, that they would just be saying this is an obligation that I have because of my belief that what my job as a judge is, is just enforce the Constitution as written. So now, you know, you can debate particular cases and so forth, but if they are claiming that the reason why they rule the way they do in particular cases is from that same textualism, I, th I think we have to at least give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of sincerity that, nah, it, yes, the, the I'm outcome not is... Well, <laughs> <laughs> let me quibble uh, with your quibble. Let me, let me make one thing clear. Me saying that they're hostile to voting rights is not a personal attack, right? Um, there are many judges who feel like they have to rule one way and have personal beliefs that are different in real life. Like, I don't know anything. I don't know them personally. So this is not a personal attack. But based on their jurisprudence during a global pandemic, I feel entirely entitled to say that they're hostile to voting rights. And I don't think that labeling this with a methodology changes that fact, right? Like methodologies are not binding. <laughs> you have a choice about the methodology that you choose. Um, and, all, and, and even more so, there's an a entire conversation that you can have in the context of the court's whole, uh, case law on this area about, for example, Anderson Burdick, right, you know, and sort of weighing the benefits and the burdens. They could have come, come out differently. There's nothing about the text that sort of demands the court's position in some of these cases over the last six months. Um, absent sort of this view that uh, the people who are disenfranchised by their rulings, I feel like they sometimes think that either they didn't do enough to try to vote or alternatively, they are just kind of like cogs in a bigger system that unfortunately, you know, oops, I'm sorry. You know, even though we're saying that voting is a fundamental right or that is fundamental in some respect, we're not honoring that. Right. And so, I, you know, I, I, don't, I never thought about saying hostile as me being, you know, trying to personalize it. Certainly not. But I do think that if you read the case law, um, they are not pro-voting. Is that yeah, no. pro-voting? <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I thank you for that. I mean, I, I agree. I, I, you're, I don't think you were making a personal attack yeah. in that sense. I, I, but I think, I do think there is a difference between you and me. I don't know whether it's language choice or style or, or whatever. I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I, I wouldn't, in my own voice, wouldn't want to put it even in the way that you've rephrased it. I, I, I want to be able to say to them, even if I disagree with them about philosophy or the outcome of a case, I want to say, you know, I don't like your ruling. Um, it doesn't, but it doesn't suggest a lack of good faith either, though, right? Like, for example, if a, if a justice is against Chevron, would it be pejorative to say that that person is hostile to the administrative state? Right? Like, it's, you know, it's just, I think it's a lot of this is because the context is voting, because this is something that people feel strongly about and passionate about, then, you know, you ascribe certain weight to words um, that try to make it personalized in some respect. Uh, so it's not even that I think they're acting in bad faith necessarily, right? But I do think that their general posture is one that has been hostile to voting rights more generally. Um, as someone who thinks that, you know, people who are eligible to vote should be entitled to vote and that the state should not be able to put barriers up that make that difficult. Um, the court takes the opposite tact in a way that I feel like is, is just not friendly or favorable. But I don't think, like, I don't see the word as, as carrying any other meaning than it would carry in other contexts, right? Like, if I said they are hostile to the administrative state, you, you wouldn't blink twice. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I, I guess... Um, I think to call somebody hostile to voting rights 
even if it's not a personal attack, even if you're not claiming bad faith, um, you know, if, I, if, if, that was, if that charge was leveled to me, I would want to say, no, that, that, that characterization is inaccurate. I'm a huge believer in voting rights. If it were true, I mean, you yeah. know, maybe, but, I, you know, if, if, if the posture of the person saying that would be, look, I would be 100% with you if Congress did X, Y, and Z on all of the voting rights yeah. that you want. I'd sign that piece of legislation if I was in Congress. Um, but, but that's not my yeah, role. No, I could, yeah, I could totally see somebody getting offended. I just don't care. If I'm being honest, <laughs> because uh, I don't, I like, because <laughs> I don't, I'm like, I'm not attacking to me. I just, you know, it's just sort of stating my view of their jurisprudence and their cases, not, you know, how they view voting personally, but how they view voting in terms of the case law affects so many people. Um, and I do think, and, and maybe this goes to sort of a larger point, why people will resist the, the label hostile. I do think it goes to this view of, you know, voters casting ballots as long as they have shown that they're worthy to do so. And the one way you do that is by overcoming any barriers to vote. If voting is truly that important to you, then you will make it happen. And I always have this feeling that that's sort of right beneath the surface of the court's opinions. And that really bothers me. It really does, because it's, it's contrary to everything we think about when we talk about voting as a fundamental right. If it's not a right, then just say it's not a right. Right. But don't act like it's a right and then make people work to exercise it. Right. Well, they may come to it. Right. They may say the claim that voting is a fundamental right is uh, a non-textual claim that, that and doesn't get uh, uh, embraced uh, unless there's a texture. Yes, they'll enforce yeah, then the Then do it so yeah. I can move on with my life. Then just yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of moving on, let's um, let's let's bracket that and maybe come back to philosophy down the down the road. Um, OK. I think I want to put two things on the table that we may have to also do in a separate podcast, but just to let our listeners know that we're following this and, and, and care about it. Uh, and, and they're somewhat related. You know, one was, again, a, a little bit more of a general point, and the other is really specific. So there's been a lot of talk in the wake of uh, Justice Ginsburg's passing and the issue of the vacancy and the... Um, fighting in Congress over the timing of filling the vacancy and so forth about um, the potential role of the vacant seat in a case that might be related to the presidential election. Um, people are thinking about Bush versus Gore and that that was a 5-4 decision and the president has even talked about this a little bit. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to formulate my own thinking about this and, and so some of this is, is tentative. Uh, but but my own view is that it's important to protect the integrity of the electoral process, including the presidential election this year, um, and keep that independent from whatever uh, philosophical disagreements that Americans are going to strongly have about uh, the future of the Supreme Court on a whole range of issues beyond voting, reproductive freedom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that... Um, it's understandable that there will be deep and strong passions on, on those sorts of issues, uh, but that and and that that may affect the judgment about timing of filling the seat or what whatnot. I I think, it, it'll, however the court itself navigates and however our public conversation navigates, I, I think it's important that the court be able to 
decide cases involving this year's election, if at all possible, that is where the court is not perceived as partisan. Uh, again, they may have be ideological differences of opinion, but if the public comes to believe that the Supreme Court plays a decisive role in the outcome of the presidential election, uh, simply because President Trump has been able to appoint three members of the court that then gives him his victory in the way that people perceive Bush versus Gore as the court's decision having given Bush that victory, although I think that's an oversimplification. I think that's very damaging both for the court, for the Constitution, for for our sense of democracy, and I just am watching or will be watching events unfold this month and maybe beyond with a view of how do we protect the integrity of the electoral process, including the court's role in it. So let me pause there and see if you, there's any thoughts you want to express on that. So I have two topic. thoughts. Um, so the first is that the problem with the process, you know, the quickness of in which the president nominated a replacement, the quickness with which they've scheduled hearings, is that I think it really precludes any real discussion of the merits. Right. And um, that's unfair to both the person nominated. That's unfair to the court. That's unfair to the general public because it just calls into question and, and sort of places this cloud over um, both the process and the, the nominee. Um, and, you know, heading into November where the Supreme Court will um, likely weigh in on something. Right. It might not be it may or may not be outcome determinative. We don't know, but they, they'll probably weigh in on something. And so it raises all these questions about um, the very thing that I think the chief justice has been fighting against for a decade now, right? The, the court's trying to preserve the court's legitimacy and, and try to distance it somewhat from partisan politics. And so it's just a really unfortunate situation that I don't know has a good answer uh, because unfortunately the, the court has become sort of this political football. Um, the country comes to a standstill when one of the justices dies. Like, okay, what is the path forward now in a way that um, just seems like an odd way for a mature democracy to operate? Um, but I, so I, I guess my second point I'll pose as a question. Um, Supreme Court weighs in, decides the presidential election in a way that, you know, gives the, let's just say they give the election to Trump. Um, so what? Right. What happens? Because and the reason I'm, I'm and I hate to raise this point because it scares me even saying it. But to what extent does our government and, you know, these outrageous things happen and they just figure people will get over it? Now, we don't know if people will actually get over it. But after 2000, they actually got over it. Right. There were people who were saying, look, the Supreme Court handed the, the presidency to Bush. This is an outrage. It's an illegitimate institution. Everybody got over it. Within a few years, the Supreme Court was polling higher than the other two branches of government, right? Like, everybody got over it. Um, all of that, the things that the president has done in the last few years that are perceived as outrageous by people on the left, um, you know, fr from day to day, people can't even remember what happened last week. Tell me something that Trump happened that happened with Trump last week. All you can tell me is that yesterday the New York Times wrote a story about his tax returns, right? Everything is so immediate. And so it makes me wonder um, the extent to which that's kind of baked in the cake now, right? If the Supreme Court comes down with a decision that gives the presidency to one party or the other, right? Even if, it, if they give it to Biden, the people on the right will be up in arms, right? So to what extent is that just our broken system and they just figure people will get over it? And that is my concern. 
Well, important point. I mean, I, I do think uh, people forget that the reason why the Supreme Court was decisive, if you put it that way, in Bush versus Gore is that Al Gore accepted defeat and didn't try to make another move. And so I think it is important to think about that if the U.S. Supreme Court does do something that could potentially be similarly, quote unquote, decisive, it may not be as decisive precisely because the candidate may not accept it in the same way that that Gore did. So I do think that's a really important point. Um, To your earlier observation that the court is likely to get a case of some kind, it's there really as of today. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, that's right. Exactly, right. It's it's now in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, It's so recent as the time that we're recording that I haven't really had a chance to even look at the opening brief, much less the other briefs that haven't been filed yet. And so um, we may have more to say on this this case in a subsequent podcast. But I do think we should alert uh, our listeners to the fact that at least my judgment at the moment, which again, is necessarily tentative, because I always like to look at both, uh, both sides of the argument in any given lawsuit, uh, before thinking what I think of the merits. Uh, it does seem to me a, a potentially strong uh, position for the applicants seeking to overturn the state court. Uh, again, there's, there's, I'm sure there are going to be strong counter arguments, but this feels to me like a big case uh, for two reasons. It, it's potentially, if not decisive, at least significant for what the voting landscape will be in Pennsylvania, which is a you know, pivotal state. So it's high stakes in that respect. But I think it's high stakes in a broader context because the claim, as I understand it so far, goes to a big question left open in Bush versus Gore, which was the so-called Article 2 issue that um, the three conservatives at the time, Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas, wrote about separately, but was unnecessary for the five-member conservative majority to to embrace because they chose the equal protection doctrine as their main focus. But Article 2 is, as I understand it, is the, the main focus of this new case. Also a related issue on Article 1, and again, not to be too technical, what that means is whether or not the United States Constitution allocates certain powers to the state legislature which belongs to the legislature and can't be superseded by other parts of the state government, including the state constitution. And this brings us all the way full back to circle to the beginning of our podcast, because that was Justice Ginsburg's um, big opinion in the Arizona redistricting case, which she prevailed on what was arguably a more uh, functional less literalist interpretation of the word legislature, more creative, if you will, judicially. That's what got Chief Justice Roberts upset. And so this case that arrived at the Supreme Court today from Pennsylvania uh, involving this presidential election, you know, could be the case, you know, that begins to test Justice Ginsburg's legacy on that particular issue. Right which could be influential, again, not just for this case, but the whole domain of this concept of to what extent does the state legislature, as a, as a body, get to call the shots within the state as opposed to the constitution of the state. Right, because they would effectively be unconstrained, right, Ned? Because I was thinking about this in the context of Amendment 4 in Florida. 
Um, and I wonder if I'm thinking about it correctly. And I know we're going to get more in the weeds on this on a later podcast, but just this notion of the ability of, you know, everyday people to change things about their uh, about federal elections um, through the ballot initiative process. Right. So, you know, if legislature means legislature, could states have a ballot initiative that enfranchises um, people with felony conviction um, for purposes of voting for president? Like, would that be off the table if legislature means legislature? Um, or is that something different because it's not uh, a matter of regulation, but more a voter qualification standard? But if this is about Article 2, that doesn't really matter, does it? Elections no, clause, that- it will matter, like in the context yeah. of electing representatives um, and um, electing senators, too, 17th Amendment. But like in the context of Article 2, it doesn't matter what kind of regulation it is. It just matters that it pertains to the election of the president, right? Yes, that's absolutely true. Although the, I don't think the, a state could constrain a popular vote. For example, I don't think, the, I don't think a, a state could say only men can vote f- well, for, for president. Right. So, of course, the rest of the Constitution is in effect, right? But, but just in a sense of constraining the ability of uh, ballot initiatives, and sort of the ability of everyday Americans to have some say on what, even indirectly, the selection of electors looks like. If the, the state legislature has has deemed that the electors will be chosen through an election and then the the everyday voter comes in and, you know, has some say in the composition of what the electorate looks like, would this decision prohibit that? Yeah, it's a great question. It opens up. I'm thinking about. You know, I have a, to- a topic that I love, ranked choice voting, same <laughs> yeah. thing, thing in a way. Right. Uh, write a referendum on that. I think we should I think we should save that for another yes. maybe urgent podcast sometime soon. I think we should see ourselves today as in this way coming full circle in terms of Justice Ginsburg and her legacy and that it really is, you know, on the table as it were right now. Um, and... Uh, and and realize that you know we are at a pivotal point one way or the other, um, and let and let's just uh, be thankful for the fact that we're able to have the conversation that we had, and uh, we'll come back and revisit this more specifically uh, soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like we laid the the foundation for a couple podcasts. There's a lot here um, I that I look that. forward I, to to unpacking because even our discussion I, of of one person one vote, I had I had questions, right. <laughs> and so so I, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, that's what's great about a podcast. We can lay <laughs> foundations and then pursue them down the road. So uh, with that, you take care. You and too. Be safe and be well, and look forward to next time. Same. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Pranita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.